The word uh, Brahma, as many of you know, is from Pali, the <coughs> language of the original Buddhist text, and it means supreme or celestial. One translation I heard of it that I liked quite a lot was the word best. Vihara means dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four qualities are said to form our best home. The first of these qualities is metta. The second is compassion. The third is sympathetic joy, that ability to take delight in the happiness of others. And the fourth is equanimity, or balance of mind. In some ways, we can see each of these qualities as a kind of natural consequence of seeing the world in a certain way. When we have a particular perspective that involves how connected we all are, how our actions are consequential, how things ripple out, when we realize it makes a difference, what we care about, what we devote ourselves to, when we have a sense of some kind of belonging to a larger picture of life, then without contrivance and without thinking and without it being sort of studied, there is just a natural expression of the heart of these four qualities. And one of the things I I really want to emphasize is that bringing this to life, even if it means opening up our perspective, reminding ourselves of another way of seeing, is something that is, is very valid in practice. I many times use this example, which I first heard from uh, Bob Thurman, who's a, a professor of um, Buddhist studies at Columbia University. I heard him use this example, and I have used it probably a million times more than he has at this point, Um, And that is, imagine you're on a subway and these Martians come and they zap the subway car so that those of you who are there in the subway car are going to be together forever. (laughs) He says, what do you do? You know, if somebody's hungry, you feed them. If somebody's freaking out, you try to calm them down. Not because you like them particularly, or you approve of them, or you're trying to get on their good side, or anything like that, but because you're going to be there together forever. And so it's such a natural way to respond to one another if we have that kind of perspective. Well, guess what? There's a truthfulness to that, that we're not so alone and cut off, that what we do and and how we live and how we relate to one another reverberates out. It's consequential. We are here together in a a much bigger, more fundamental sense. So not too long ago, I was on a um, plane in LaGuardia Airport about to go to Tucson to hear the Dalai Lama speak, and I was going a day early um, in order to be with the local meditation group there. So sitting on this plane in LaGuardia, And it ended up sitting on the runway for three and a half hours in what I now 
looking back, refer to as the breakdown of civilization. <laughs> as time went on and it got hotter and people got crazier and crazier and yelling and screaming, get me off this flight. And, and I wasn't feeling that good myself, you know. I was sitting there in some anxiety thinking, well, you know, someone's supposed to pick me up and, you know, I can't reach them and this is awful and... Um, and then at one point, that example of Bob's, which I have used so many times in teaching, came to my mind. And I looked around the plane, and I thought, what if these are my people? You know? What if this is it? It's like, I'm with these people forever. And it was quite interesting, because it made a difference. One of the... Um, Antidotes for anger in the Buddhist psychology, something that I've, I've always found interesting, is interest. Because if we're angry at someone or something or some part of ourselves, we're trying to push it away or shove it away or make it go away, which is almost like the energetic opposite of taking an interest, which involves being there, being curious, having a sense of wonderment, of not knowing, of exploring willing to see, going deeper toward understanding. So that's actually what I found. You know, it's not like I liked everybody all of a sudden, and I thought, oh, good, yell. Yell more. <laughs> it wasn't like that, but it was, it was much more of a sense of, I found them kind of interesting. And I was looking at, at these people, and I thought, these are my people. Okay, you know, how are you? Is there something I can do, you know? It was a very, very different feeling of somehow we're in this together. So there, there are two things about that example. One is um, that I'd like to emphasize. One is taking something that we might hold as an abstraction and making it real. You know, I had told that story 70 billion times. But it's very different to hold something as a kind of distant admiration or... Um, as an idea, there's a big difference between that and saying, okay, what would that look like right now if I were to do that right now? That's the first thing. And the second thing, of course, is just the perspective. Because when we have a certain perspective of connection, then the force of loving kindness or compassion is not the next strained effort that we make. It's what happens because we're seeing the world in a certain way. So the example I, I use very often here, like sitting in front of a room full of people, is, okay, what if we all thought for a moment, how many beings are actually represented here right now? There are those of us, of course, who are here physically, and then what if we included everyone who had influenced us in some way to be here? You know, read us a poem or gave us a book or talked about their meditation experience. And what if they were here too? And all of those people who'd really hurt us, not you know those minor annoyances that we've been sending metta to, but the people who have really brought us to an edge, almost so that we had to say, 
I'm looking for a deeper meaning of happiness. I've got to find another way. So what if they were here too? And all the people who made the clothing that we're wearing and and grew the food that we ate today and transported the food and on and on and on. It's a lot of beings. Every instant is like this vast and intricate coming together of all these connections and relationships and um, encounters and all of that. It's like every one of us has come here on a sea of connections. And that is this moment in time. When we had our um, 20th anniversary of IMS, um, we had this, even though we moved in 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 February, in Valentine's Day, we had the celebration in the summer. And one of the things we did for that was um, one of the uh, people who sits the um, young adults retreat, the the teen retreat here, um, helped plant a tree in the garden. And so I say, you know, now you can go down into the garden and you can see this tree. And there's one way of seeing the tree, and you just see a tree. It's like a, a an entity standing apart as a, a singular-seeming entity. And there's another way of seeing the tree where you see the tree, but you sense the nature of the earth which has nourished it, and everyone who has stewarded this piece of land through centuries, and the quality of the rain which is nourishing this tree and everything that affects the quality of the rain all across the globe and the sunlight and the moonlight and there's so many ways of looking at the tree and sensing this much bigger picture or sometimes I look at the tree and I think about those teenagers you know and what was their course of life that had brought them to come here at such a young age or I look at the tree, and I I think just of now, almost 30 years, just about, to the day, of of this particular institution being here, and, you know, and all of the different kind of elements of of, um, being here, and what that means to maintain an organization, and I look at the tree, and there's all of that, too. And that's part of the truth of life, is that we can feel so alone. But what is the reality? The reality is that we are so very connected to a bigger picture, all of us. It's just in the nature of things. And the more we begin to sense that, then it is that natural unfolding of, of those qualities it's like um, one of the original teaching stories I ever told about loving kindness um, was this story uh, that Sylvia Borstein had told me about teaching here one year and then flying back to San Francisco, where she lives, and her plane stopping in Chicago and then taking off again for the second leg of the journey. And the pilot getting on the PA system about 40 minutes into that second flight after Chicago and saying, 
Well, we've developed a little problem with the hydraulic system of the plane, and there's really nothing to worry about, but rather than fly over the Rockies without a fully functioning hydraulic system, we're just going to turn around and go back. And he said, now there's really nothing to worry about, and the flight attendants will now instruct you in the position to take in the event of an emergency landing, and they're going to go around and collect all of your eyeglasses and all of your shoes and all of the pens out of your pockets, and which I later learned is some something to do in case one has to go down an emergency chute. And so Sylvia said she was sitting there, not quite knowing what to do, and uh, she decided she was going to do loving-kindness practice. So she did metta, um, and she did it toward those whom she feels closest to in a very personal sense in this life, her husband, her children, their partners, her grandchildren, and when she would get to her youngest grandchild, she would begin again with her husband and just you know, go through the phrases of metta. Now, she also said that for some reason the pilot would get on the PA system every five minutes and say, we're going to be landing in 35 minutes, and then we're going to be landing in 30 minutes, we're going to be landing in 25 minutes. And every time he did that, she would just go back to doing the metta in the way she had been doing. And then finally the pilot <coughs> got on and said, we're going to be landing in five minutes. So Sylvia thought, well, in five minutes, I'll either be dead or I'll still be alive. And she said when she went to do the loving kindness at that moment, she discovered that actually the only way she could do it was in a really open way for all beings everywhere. And so she spent five minutes doing metta for all beings everywhere, without distinction, without exception. And she said the plane landed. It was a landing like any other landing. And they fixed whatever. And then they, they took off again. But one of the reasons that it has been such an important story for me was my sense of her in that moment when she just couldn't limit the scope of loving kindness to those she was so close to in life. Because in my mind, there is such a beauty in that, in my sense of that moment, because it was so unforced or unfeigned. It's not like she was sitting there thinking, well, you know, I don't really feel like sending metta to all beings, but, you know, what if anyone found out, you know, that I spent the last five minutes of my life just wishing good things for those I feel so close to? I mean, that would be terrible, you know? Like, what a reputation for a Buddhist meditation teacher to have after they're dead, you know, <laughs> that they, you know, that they did that. So I better force myself, you know, somehow to open my mind and include all of these other beings I don't really care about, actually, you know. I mean, it's nothing like that. It's like she just couldn't. Because with maybe only five minutes left to live, life looked different. And connection looked different. And love looked different than it had before. And so this is, in some way, what we're actually doing through paying attention, through mindfulness, is understanding ourselves in a different way, understanding the world in a different way, understanding the relationship 
between ourselves and the world in a different way. So that what happens in the most natural kind of radiance is the force of loving kindness or compassion. And just to to finish up the model of faith that I talked about the other night when I talked about bright faith as the beginning leading to a kind of verified faith when one has tested and investigated and put something into practice and checked it out for oneself, the continuance of that model is that when a verified faith, something that we have come to see for ourselves, is really reinforced deeply by continually seeing it, by affirming it, by that kind of investigative process, it becomes not a a belief that we hold or um, a way of being separate from others, but it becomes who we actually are. It's like we live it without that kind of self-consciousness. So that my favorite model for this as far as I can tell, um, very natural expression of love and compassion is the Dalai Lama, who, as much as I can tell, seems to be in a way that doesn't separate, you know, and doesn't um, put on this aura of somehow pretending, like, you know, oh, this is a really boring person, but I am the Dalai Lama, so... I better act like I care. You know, it's not like that at all. There's something so um, immediate which seems to come from the way he sees the world, the way he sees others without, without exception. And so when the Dalai Lama was given the Nobel Peace Prize some years ago, one of my friends said, they thought that giving the Dalai Lama a peace prize was like giving Mother Nature an art award, you know, which is very sweet. But that doesn't mean it just happens, you know, that that level of or that um, unlimited kind of love just happens to somebody. It's a practice. But practice deeply and taken to heart and and really deeply, deeply investigated so that it becomes how we see the world. What happens next is artless, you know? It's, it simply is. So everything we're doing in terms of insight practice, trying to see clearly, has that kind of manifestation or result in the most unselfconscious, natural, easeful expression of love and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. And then the next level is not so much based on how we see the world, but what we do with our attention. It's having the willingness and the courage and the determination and the interest when we are going down an old familiar path that's sort of a rut of actually noticing that and changing the channel. 
very much in the spirit in which we've been working all week. You know, what happens when instead of fixating on that really, really stupid thing I said and obsessing about it and being consumed by it, I actually remember to pay attention to the good within me. What happens? So we find ourselves going down a certain well-worn way of paying attention, looking at the negative, remembering the grudge, bolstering the fear, whatever it might be. And we take the time and make the experiment to look a different way, just to see, to wish someone well, even if we have been in the habit of ignoring them, to look for the good when that is not realistic in some way, to remember that all beings want to be happy, that there is that, almost as a a kind of bottom line truth to things. What happens when we're in conversation with somebody, but there's quite a bit of our mind that's taken up with the next person we need to talk about or the phone call we need to make. And we see that and we think, come back. Just be here. Just as in the meditative process, we've gathered our energy behind an object in the present moment. We notice that we're really scattered. We gather our energy. We listen. We pay attention. What happens when we find ourselves getting reactive in the same old way, and then we think, what if I try this instead? Not too long ago, I was on a train um, in New York State, going back into the city. And uh, I found myself sitting in between... On my left was a woman having a a moderately loud conversation on a cell phone. And on my right was a man getting increasingly agitated at the volume of her call. And she was going on and he was like wiggling and squirming and I could feel, you know, how upset he was getting. And finally he just erupted and he screamed out loud, you're making too much noise. And I looked at him and I thought, so were you. (laughs) You know, and I could just watch them sort of and imagine the escalation as everybody just went up and up and up. And what, what came into my mind was this quotation usually attributed to Albert Einstein, who I'm sure said it, but um, it's hard to source. Uh, When he apparently said something like, um, the significant problems we face in the world cannot be solved by the same level of thinking that created them. You know, instead of just staying on the same level of reaction and revenge and all of the ways that it is so tempting, you know, what would happen if we looked for a whole other way of thinking and didn't just engage in the same old ways? The significant problems that we face cannot be solved by the same level of thinking that created them. And so this becomes like the active practice of loving kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity. Not just the natural unfolding or um, display of it through seeing the world in a certain way, 
but it's almost like playing with reality and saying, I'm going to be creative enough and intent enough and daring enough to see what happens when I pay attention consciously in a different way. So this is almost like seeing loving kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity as a skill that we can actually learn. Which is really quite an amazing thought. Most of us have not been taught that skill. We've taught we've been taught certainly, you know, to continue with these examples, to think of ourselves quite negatively and feel like it's kind of boastful and weird to think about anything positive within us. We've been taught that veneer of sophistication to see the negative all around us. That's really good. We've been taught that we're all, you know, cut off from one another and we have to live in competition. So it takes a lot to say, I'm going to make the experiment to look at things in a different way. It's like if you look at the quality of sympathetic joy, actually taking delight in the happiness of others. It's quite a difficult state in some ways, although I think we all can appreciate the power of it because we know what it's like when we are the recipient of it or not. When somebody is with us, something really good has happened for us, we've enjoyed some success or good fortune, and someone is just so happy for us, and it's so beautiful to feel their delight in our joy. It feels like such an incredible gift. Whereas other people, and they may act like they're happy, but you just get this feeling that They would be just as glad if we lost it all, if it didn't happen. And so we can sense what that that quality actually is and and how how beautiful it is. But it's not that easy. Because mostly we have the sense like happiness is really a limited commodity in this world. And the more someone else has, the less there's going to be for us. But a lot of times that's really illogical. It makes no sense. It's like, um, I used this example in the last retreat I taught here. I said, you know, if someone, if my friend's book had not gotten on the New York Times bestseller list, does that mean mine would have automatically? Not likely. But we feel that. It's like, how could this happen for you and not for me? As though it would have happened for me if it hadn't happened for them. And sometimes we are in direct competition for whatever. But most of the time we're not. I happen to have three friends in that retreat who were on the New York Times bestseller list. And they each came up to me and they said, did you mean me? (laughs) And I did mean one of them, but not all three of them. I'd forgotten about the other two, actually, when I used the example. Um, You know, so really, it's like we, we go around with this feeling like we're in competition and that we would only have more if that person had less. But mostly, it's not like that. 
And so can we use our attention in a different way? And instead of that sort of beleaguered feeling of like, oh no, when we see someone's happiness or good fortune, can we actively cultivate being happy for them? It would make a very big difference in in how we live. I had a, a resolve for a few years to try to spend the winters in L.A., which was really smart. Uh, but the last two or three years, it hasn't happened, and I've been here instead. And um, I'm very happy to be here, but <laughs> uh, cold. And um, I think it was three years ago, I was in L.A., and um, I was in Malibu, staying at a friend's house on the beach. And I'd call home here, and, you know, it was a horrible winter. It was like 15 below and 10 below, and there I was in Malibu. And one day I called back to Massachusetts because I had a doctor's appointment coming up that I needed to postpone. So um, the receptionist at the doctor's office kept saying to me, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. And finally I said, oh, maybe you can't hear me because I'm in Malibu right on the beach and the sound of the waves crashing on the shore <laughs> is drowning out my voice. And, and she said, is that true? And I said, yeah. And she said, I hate you. She said, I'm not changing your appointment. She said, do you want to change your appointment so you can stay there longer? I don't want to help you stay there longer. And I thought, I mean, of course she was choking, but don't we somehow feel that, you know, quite a bit of the time? And so we consciously use our attention differently. You know, not because we're condemning ourselves and, and we hate those habits of mind that hold us back and have us be jealous, but because we are willing to make the experiment and to develop that skill. We do that with loving kindness. We do that with compassion. We do that with sympathetic joy. And we do that with equanimity. To remember, in the case of equanimity, that it's really about balance. It's about some perspective on things, on on the nature of things. It's acknowledging how much we don't know, how what we see in front of us is so often not the end of a story, but just a fragment of it, that there's a very big picture of life and that we do what we can, we do everything that we can, and we also need to let go into that bigger picture and allow things to unfold, allow nature to take its course. As the Buddha talked about life, he talked about pleasure and pain and gain and loss, praise and blame and fame and disrepute. He said, this is it. There is no one who experiences only pleasure and no pain. And there's no one who experiences only praise and no blame. It's just this constant movement between what he called the vicissitudes, these eight aspects or 
qualities of life. There's pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. It's constant movement, which doesn't mean that, you know, we don't notice the difference. I mean, of course, we we have that kind of discernment and we have very human feeling in, in response to that, but we can also hold that feeling in the perspective of wisdom to see, yeah, you know, this is actually how it is. This is in the nature of things. So we may do absolutely the best that we can do in a spirit of compassion, for example. And there also can be the kind of wisdom that tells us we're not in control of the unfolding of the universe, that we do absolutely the best we can, and we don't know how it will all unfold, what it will all be like. And many of you have heard one or another of us talk about how when we first moved in here, um, we received uh, two letters within the first month that were remarkable for how they were addressed. The first, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. (laughs) And for a long time, that was my favorite I used to look at the envelope and think, what were they thinking? (laughs) But of course, we know, you know, that's the the great cultural dictum. If it doesn't happen instantly, it's not worth it. I mean, that is the nature of every piece of marketing we have ever seen. It's going to happen right now for you. In fact, this is an aside, I have... um, a book that I wrote that came out um, in September called The Force of Kindness. And when it was in in process, um, it's got a CD inside of it with some guided meditations on it. And uh, when it was in process, um, I got a, a letter from the publisher, who were very good friends of mine, um, uh, saying, you know, we're on deadline. These letters always start that way. We're on deadline. And here's the promotional material that's going to go out with the book. Um, Please don't change anything unless it's extremely important to you because we're really in a rush. So I opened it up, and the first line said something like, um, about the loving-kindness practices that were on the CD, it said, from the first instant you do these practices, comma, Salzburg promises, close comma, your heart will melt like ice in the sun. (laughs) So I wrote back to them and I said, you've got to change that. (laughs) I said, you're going to get sued. Or what's worse, you're going to get me sued. I said, nothing happens from the first instant you do the practice. It's not like that. You know, but this is what we hear everywhere. So the Instant Meditation Society. So, okay, back to that. So the second letter that we received 30 years ago, um, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. Um, That has 
really become my favorite. And in all these years, um, once, just a few months ago, we got a letter addressed to the INCITE, I-N-C-I-T-E, Meditation Society, but there's never really been anything as good as the Hindsight Meditation Society because it's actually really true. You know, in, in, uh, in terms of spiritual life or in terms of my meditation practice, you know, there have been so many times when I have just done it and it has felt like nothing is happening, only for me to look back with the wisdom of hindsight and to say, isn't that amazing? I thought there was nothing happening, but it actually was really important. It's like that seemingly dry period of not very satisfying practice was laying the foundation for this other thing to emerge, or even that really, really hurt. That was terribly painful. But that opened me in some way to be ready for what was coming next and to be able to meet it. And in life as well, and I say this in the light of equanimity and its place in loving kindness or compassion, where we try to make a difference, where we are making efforts to be of help, to be of service. It really, I think, is best understood in the light of the Hindsight Meditation Society because there have been so many times, and I think this is true for everybody, you know, where we have wanted to make a difference, we've done something, it seemed to be going nowhere. And when we are lucky, sometime later, there is some kind of response to us that shows us, you know, I actually planted a seed there. I had no idea that it was ever going to make any difference. But it was the seed that, as it turned out, was important in some way. In some sense, that's almost all we can do, is be willing to plant the seed and then let nature take its course. And there have been so many times, say, where I've given somebody a book and, and they've thanked me, you know, and maybe five years later, you know, they'll say, well, you know, it's so interesting. You gave me that book and I kind of looked at it and it didn't mean much to me. But now, you know, my mother is sick or I've lost my job or even like this incredible opportunity has opened up for me and I was really timid about going for it and I picked up the book and it was just what I needed to hear. Isn't that strange? I think, yeah, it's pretty strange. So if we have that kind of really big perspective of not knowing, then we are so much more able to do the best we can do and have a kind of heartfulness in that without the expectation that we will have instant results, that the person will get well now, that it will all work out. Because in fact, life just isn't like that. 
Equanimity is a hard quality to understand. It's easy to think of it as indifference or not caring or um, being cut off in some way, pulling back. But it really does mean wisdom. It means understanding. And it's hard to imagine why we would think that something like love would be weakened by understanding. But we tend to. You know, we feel like, oh, equanimity will make me not care. It will make me cut off. Um, You know, and I hear that a lot, that uh, equanimity doesn't seem to fit. In fact, I thought that as well when I first went to Burma. And I was told, okay, here, I mean, I knew it anyway, but, you know, in in a kind of explicit sense, here are the four Brahma-viharas and you know, it's loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, and this is what you'll be practicing is these four qualities. I thought, I don't get it. You know, it's like the first three seem so consonant with one another emotionally. I could see how they could be together, but that last seems so different. I thought, it, you know, it seems almost antithetical. But of course, in the living experience of it, I could see it wasn't antithetical at all. In some ways, Equanimity is the underpinning. It's said that the quality of equanimity will endow loving kindness with patience. So that it isn't that kind of, you know, may you be happy by tonight sort of thing. You know, it, the loving kindness doesn't become attachment or that kind of striving. And it's said that equanimity will give compassion courage because it's not easy to just be there in the face of suffering and also recognize we can't make it all better. As soon as that realization comes, our tendency is to retreat. It's to pull back. It's to hide. We do need a measure of courage to be there with what we cannot resolve and we cannot fix. And it's said that equanimity allows sympathetic joy to reach beyond what for most people, some people have that quality naturally. It's quite delightful. They just seem to be filled with joy for other people's joy. But for most of us, it's work. And it's often taught, actually, that of those four qualities of uh, loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity, sympathetic joy is hardest for many people. You know, so if that is one situation, then you need equanimity for sympathetic joy to move beyond what is usually a very small number of people that we can feel happy for, genuinely, when they're happy. You know, usually it's limited to those who are sort of um, in our family or, you know, those we identify with, almost as like an extension of ourselves. And we need a great deal of equanimity to understand the movement in life of pleasure and pain, to understand how we're out of control of so much of that movement. That really big picture to see that someone else's happiness doesn't take anything away from us it actually can add to our happiness and not inhibit it or destroy it. 
we need that kind of bigness of the view of equanimity for sympathetic joy to reach beyond those magical few that we can be happy for. And so it's, it's a really essential quality. We develop any one of these qualities really in, in some way we are necessarily bringing in the other three, which is why you don't need to do all four distinct practices of the Brahma-viharas in order to cultivate the states. If we're doing loving-kindness practice, we're also doing compassion because many of the beings who come to mind are not doing so well. And, and we feel the openness to their, their difficulty and their pain. Many beings may be doing well. And we feel the wish for that happiness to extend and deepen rather than diminish. And always, always there's equanimity because otherwise it would not be the actual state of, of the Brahma-vihara. And we can feel when we're going over into that sort of impatient demand and we can come back to what is essentially that freely given gift to wish for the, the welfare and the happiness of someone with as deep a letting go as is also involved. So we have all four states actually intertwining inevitably whenever we undertake any one practice. And so as we, you know, we continue perhaps with um, insight practice, we do see the world in a different way and we find the flowering of these states. And if one is interested or inspired in some way, we actively undertake the skill of love and loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity and bring that to life, not only in, in the formal sense of cultivating these states as we practice, but really as we live in everyday encounters and in, in triumphs and in, in problems. And we find ourselves stuck on a plane and um, we also get great gifts and we watch others get great gifts and we watch that fall apart. And um, It's life, you know, in, in all of its various forms. And we have an opportunity in all of those circumstances to remember what we care about the most and to, to work to make it real right there in whatever situation is presenting itself. Okay, so let's sit together for a minute. This talk was given by Sharon Salzberg at Insight Meditation Society on February 10, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.ghostbusters.org slash donate.